Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, everybody. Welcome into an all-new episode of Can We Please Talk Podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Sperry. On the program today, a Super Bowl to forget, maybe to remember the other day, Nicholas. Speaking of forgetting and not remembering, we got two old guys that are running for president of the United States, Nick. They seem to forget a lot. Nick and I are going to break down how 81 minus 77 equals four years of someone who probably shouldn't be running this country. Plus, later on the program, a former attorney of somebody who ran for this, who's running for this country, the, the highest office in the land, Timothy Palatori, the former Trump attorney, joins the podcast. He's going to help us analyze the week that was legally for the former president, the immunity case, the Supreme Court heard the Colorado ballot case, plus why the special prosecutor decided not to charge current president in his handling of classified documents. Tim coming up in just a bit. Quick uh, housekeeping notes for, for you and I, Nick, uh, and for the audience out there. On your episode of Back Your Play with Q is out there. Q and the team break down the Super Bowl that just happened. Overtime, 49ers not knowing the rule changes from the regular season uh, to the postseason. All of that and more you can go check out Back Your Play with Rich Quinones over on LeonMediaNetwork.com or listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Also, an all-new episode of Ask the Experts, excuse me, Ask the Experts, with our buddy Curran Batia. Curran actually joined the New York Post sports team. Dexter Henry, they break down all of the Super Bowl prop bets, winners, losers, everything that happened from the night, how many times CBS would show Taylor Swift, 
If you had the under, I think you may have lost that one. Who knows? Uh, go check out that episode of Ask the Experts over on LeonMediaNetwork.com or listen to it wherever you get your pods. And also our buddy Nick Saveri here who moonlights on another podcast called Educate US. Go check out Nick, Stacy, and Patrice as they welcomed in their uh, colleague and obviously a former school board member, Paul Brita. He was on the show breaking down everything. If you if you have no idea what people do on school boards and you and you sometimes you see them on the news and you're like, why are we covering the school board? What is it that these folks do? You really want to learn more about it? Go check out this latest episode of Educate US over on LeonMediaNetwork.com or listen to it wherever you get your podcast. Now, before I say hello to you, Nick, check this out. Our 200th episode was the other day and we, you know, Nick and I forgot. We literally forgot to mention that it's been 200 episodes of Can We Please Talk. It's been almost four years, going going on four years that we've been doing this show. I just wanted to quickly at the, at the top, thank all the listeners out there that have been following us, listening to us wherever you get your pods, watching us over on YouTube. Shout out to all of you that have been doing that, that have messaged the show. Uh, we could not thank you uh, enough. And obviously uh, in the process, we forgot. You know, and that's our bad. But I mean, some people may notice it depends on your your podcast platform that you listen to it, because some don't actually numerically show you what order the episode is in. But uh, I noticed it the other day when I was like, hey, we forgot to do something. That's how much we get into in the weeds of what we want to do from a content perspective. So, Nick, shout out to you. Happy 200th episode. And how you doing, buddy? Uh, a, almost a boring game turned exciting in the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl. I know you wanted to get off your chest something about Patrick Mahomes and Taylor Swift as the audience is getting ready to maybe change the the station or the pod. I hope they don't. Let's hear this take. How are you doing, sir? I'm good. I think the take is softened a little bit. Let's, I don't want to bury the lead though. I mean, 200 episodes, I've been sitting with that since you and I talked about it. Um, I think the reason we, it's not that we didn't choose to talk about, it. obviously we talked, we realized it after the fact. I think we just grind. I think what, any successful show does is the ability to just on a regular basis, hold itself up to its values and constantly deliver. Um, you know, when we decided to start this journey, you know, four years ago, well, it'll be four years this November in 2024. You know, we said we're both professionals. You know, we want to give this our all because, you know, you and I are both the kids of immigrants. We don't know any other way than completely investing yourself. Um, and it just shows up. And I think, you know, after so many episodes, you know, just the fact that like, this is what we do, you know, it's on our schedules. We make time from our families, the work that we do outside of this. And we're just excited and dedicated to really kind of push our passions to something that, um, definitely seems to have some social outcomes. We're certainly, you and I are both hearing from people that, you know, take, take this show seriously, find value in the show because it fills a niche that is not often in the, the media and podcasting space as it relates to news and commentary. And, and I'm proud of that. You know, I, um, you know, it's, that's kind of, that's kind of where I leave it as far as, you know, the Super Bowl goes. Here we um, go. Here we go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all I would say, I mean, I've, I've said this about Patrick Mahomes in the past, you know, a couple of years ago, the NFL ran a, an ad in solidarity with black lives matter in 2020, but it seemed like every company, was doing something in honor of Black Lives Matter. You know, so here's Pat Mahomes, you know, featured on the ad, talking about the importance of, you know, being, of recognizing this moment of, of racial reckoning in the country. Meanwhile, your fans still do the tomahawk chop, you know, and 
And it's so sad though, because we're at a place where people, when I say it to others, I get, I get a lot of eye rolls, like whatever it's like, you know, we're at a time where some, somehow people have been taught history so badly that you don't understand. People don't understand. You know, when you see that, what you're seeing is a mockery of indigenous people, the name chiefs, the gesture of the fans, which was also the same case in Atlanta with the Braves. It's disrespectful. And I'd be fine with it if Patrick Mahomes doubled down and said, yeah, you know what? Not a big fan, but that's what we do here in Kansas City. I wouldn't agree with it, but I respect that. What I don't respect is an end zone that says end racism, a quarterback that says, you know, we should be, you know, standing up for people. Um, meanwhile, you not you don't have the confidence nor the courage to talk to your fans about this. Because we heard the chance yesterday we saw the tomahawk drops of the super bowl um so it's wildly inconsistent which it's unnerves me and for taylor swift a couple of, you know recently there's been a clip maybe a year ago i think of her talking about you know wanting to be more political you know and she's on a chair talking to her parents about you know needing to speak up because she didn't do it in 2016 and my question to her is you know while you've got all this FaceTime with your boy are you prepared to are you serious about this I mean, you certainly want to paint yourself as a darling for progressives and liberals, and then that's fine. But your boy happens to be playing tight end for a team that's built upon a race, a racist premise for a team name. Are you prepared to call the hunts out for that? Are you prepared to tell those fans in Kansas City who suddenly are going to buy all your records and stream all your songs that you folks are a little bit, a little bit problematic? Paul Rudd, I'm, I'm looking at you too, by the way. I saw you in one of those ads about racism. Where are you at right now? Michael, never understand. How is it possible that we have taught history in this country so pathetically that we have a group of people wiped out or displaced and we can't even remove them from our sports teams? We did that in Washington. We could probably examine that in Kansas City. That all aside, by the way, folks, Mahomes is one of the best players in the NFL to watch. It's the second coming of Michael Jordan as far as I'm concerned. And, Shout out to him, but I think you all can do better or be, at least be a little two-faced about what you stand on. Well, the only thing I will say to this is, is just a smidge of a pushback here. And I've, I've always echoed what Charles Barkley said in that famous uh, campaign about not being a role model. You know, sometimes we put these folks on pedestals. Like I, The perfect example is me. I am trying to actively be more on television to give more of a platform to what it is I'm saying. Because I have, you know, working in conservative media perspective, now working for what some people consider liberal media, mainstream media, whatever you want to label it. Those are your ears. That's not what they're calling themselves. So I'm actively saying I want to go out there and talk about the election cycle, talk about the candidates, give analysis and perspective that's rooted in data, but then also where I would hope you make a choice based on everything presented to you. And we're going to talk to Tim in a second, who's very in that same realm about evidence being presented to them from the legal perspective. Taylor Swift, Ice Spice, uh, you know, Ice Tea, Ice Latte, whoever the hell is in that booth with them. It doesn't matter um, about their political perspectives because they're not in the political commentary game. Like it, they, I, I get it. They're seen by millions of people. But to the Charles Barkley point, like the parents should be the role model. I'm not your role model. 
Like you happen to watch me play basketball. I happen to make millions of dollars. I happen to get endorsements by other folks. Yes, I'm going to give back to the community that comes part of the territory, but you shouldn't be looking to me as your North Star for political messaging because I'm flawed just like any other human being is flawed. A and B, I haven't chosen to be on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, you know, NPR, Reuters as a political commentator. I'm not here to chime in because sometimes those folks are not all knowing or don't follow this stuff or, you know, uh, look, we have a member of Congress coming up in the next couple of episodes. You know, when's the last time Taylor Swift met with a member of Congress? I, I, this is not a, it's a rhetorical question. Like she probably hasn't, you know, I don't know. So like, do we really want Taylor Swift? Maybe she doesn't know all of the political, you know, uh, undertakings of different states, et cetera. Yes, she has the largest platform. If she, like you said, she chooses to use it, cool. If she doesn't, we shouldn't be, you know, ad, you know, admonishing these people or anything like that or saying, you know, like, why aren't you doing more? If they don't want to be in the game, they don't want to be in the game. Now, I do get mad about selective amnesia, you know, like with LeBron. I champion this, but then they'll play the whataboutism game with him. Or what about the Chinese Uyghurs? And why aren't you saying anything about that? Dude, I'm not Chinese. Like, what? I, I, how many other racial groups do I got to help out here? Like, I'm trying to help out my people first. So, like, that's the only thing that I would push back on that. I don't want to really get into that because I want to get into two folks that are a little bit older. And by older, I mean almost two times our ages, Nick. Actually, one guy is already two times our age. And I want to get into whether either of these guys should be president of the United States. But if you enjoyed the Super Bowl, I hope you did. If you got mad at how many times Taylor Swift was shown on screen, you're an idiot. Because if any other celebrity is shown on screen so many times, who cares? I hope you enjoyed the game and I hope you and yours are safe. Let's get into our first segment here, Nick. An amazing transition by me to get us off of uh, Patrick Mahomes and Taylor Swift and into Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Because a lot has been being made of the two guys that are running for the highest office in the land. We're going to take Nikki Haley out of the equation. We're going to pretend like everything is already settled between Trump and Biden and the rematch that's going to happen. If you go onto Google search and you just type in, are Biden and Trump too old? You will get almost 20 pages of returns, articles from The Atlantic, from ABC News, CBS News, of all of the different gaffes that each of these guys have done over the past, it seems like, six, seven years, obviously, to candidate Trump to now former President Trump and what President Biden has had happen over the last couple of years, in specific last week, trying to defend himself and his name and mixing up, you know, the president of Mexico and Egypt, respectively. So today, in our first segment, Nick and I are going to get into both of these guys, the gaffes, the severities, and what to make of this as we head into November of who not only should you be choosing, but why you should be choosing them based on what they've actually said and not what they've actually messed up. So to start with that, I want to give you a little bit of data around some numbers that came through. Uh, this was back in, I, I believe it was in late October going into November. This was an ABC News Washington Post poll. 74% of Americans at the time said Biden was too old for reelection. Trump was seen as too old by 50% of Americans. Remember what I said at the beginning of the show? One's 81, the other one's 77. For those of you that are not math majors, they're separated by a term in the Oval Office of four years, okay? Now, having said all that, Nikki Haley's campaign has been running ads 
featuring the two actors in Grumpy Old Men talking about both of these guys being elected president because she says these folks tend to have slip ups. They tend to make mistakes, mistakes that we've seen on television. They have slower ways of speaking and what their thought process looks like to what they actually put out on uh, camera with their mouths. You don't believe me. Maybe you haven't heard any of this. Take a listen to some. By the way, they never report the crowd on January 6th. You know, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley. You know, they did. You know, they destroyed all of the information, all of the evidence, everything deleted and destroyed all of it, all of it because of lots of things like Nikki Haley is in charge of security. We offered her 10,000 people. After I was elected, I went to what they call a G7 meeting, all the NATO leaders. I was in I was in the south of England. And I sat down and I said, America's back. And Mitterrand from Germany, I mean, from France, looked at me and said, uh, said, you know, what, why, how, how long are you back for? My co-host is shaking his head there. And this is the problem that we face in November. The two of them are confusing certain things, certain terms. They're misremembering that they've had classified documents. One is actually advocating for Russia to go ahead and, and invade other people. And then they're confusing Nikki Haley and World War II with World War III, which hasn't happened yet. Um, there's a bunch to go off of that. But the biggest thing that I wanted to harp on today for segment one is really talking about, do these gaffes matter? And the equivalency of how these gaffes are kind of ranked amongst each of them, one. And then two, Hope and optimism for why the gaffes may not mean as much as you go to the ballot box in November, because one person has been pretty unclear with message in terms of what they would do if they got back into office. And the other one is currently doing things in office and saying why they should be reelected, at least not vociferously as the other one. So what do you make of kind of not only what you just heard there, what the polling has said, how it's really kind of vastly far off because one uh, poll says 74% of Americans think Biden's too old, yet the guy just a few years younger, 50% of them say he's too old. Like, what do you make of it on this age thing as everyone is kind of covering this and talking about the age of these candidates? Objectively speaking, you know, both of these guys have had plenty of guffaws. So, Neither of them seems to be coherent enough to be president. So when you have many Americans that look at Biden, but don't look at Trump, immediately that should set off a red flag in everyone's mind. I appreciate you laying out just a couple of clips to show examples. You know, the Mitterrand comment is funny because this is in reference, of course, to, you know, former president of France, Francois Mitterrand, who had been president up until 1995. You know, obviously, Emmanuel Macron is now president who's been in office since 2017. Now, it seemed like a small thing. But what I wonder about is, you know, how often is that happening you know, to the current president? You know, it's an extreme example. Mike, you and I, when we talked about now um, the late Senator Dianne Feinstein of California, that one of the things that we saw toward the end of her time in Congress and sadly, to the end of her life, there was a clip of her essentially almost falling asleep or being incoherent 
in Congress. And we're watching an assistant of hers, helping her to read over material and sign something. That is what I'm scared of. Are we in a situation where if either person wins, are they going to run the risk of making decisions where someone in the room says, that's actually not true, Mr. President or you know, Madam President, it's really this. And do they just go along with that? I agree with you because, you know, there was an article in The Atlantic. Uh, and I, again, I encourage people, if you want to do a Google search and just type in the two of them and type in gaffes, there's an article by Yair Rosenberg in The Atlantic that says what Biden's critics get wrong about his gaffes. In the beginning of this article, Nick, it says Speaker Mike Johnson went on television the other day. He mixed up Iran and Israel when he said that the U.S. should be helping Iran. Obviously, he meant Israel, not Iran. Uh, Fox News primetime host Jesse Waters, who's been the bane of you and I's existence, he introduced South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem as hailing from South Carolina as the South Carolina governor. Obviously, not true. Uh, there's been a bunch of other errors that people make. It's not easy uh, when the the public figure is out there talking to a bunch of reporters. And I'll give you a case, an example right here, because uh, let's play a clip from uh, President Biden last week talking to reporters. Okay, 81-year-old man shouting, reporters are shouting at him questions after the special counsel uh, ruled, uh, you know, and said they weren't going to charge him in these handling of his classified documents. Take a listen to how the room sounds and how you think a typical 81-year-old would react to all this or a 77-year-old. Take a listen. President, for months when you were asked about your age, you would respond with the words, watch me. Many American people have been watching and they have expressed concerns about your age. That is they, your judgment. They, that is your is judgment. That is not the judgment concerns. of the press. They express concerns about your mental acuity. They say that you are too old. Mr. President, in December, you told me that you believe there are many other Democrats who could defeat Donald Trump. So why does it have to be you now? Why, what is your answer to that question? Because I'm the most qualified person in this country to be president of the United States and finish the job I started. President Biden, something the special counsel said in his report is that one of the reasons you were not charged is because, in his description, you are a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. I'm well-meaning, and I'm an elderly man, and I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president, and I put this country back on its feet. I don't need his recommendation. It's How totally bad out. is your memory, and can you continue as president? My memory is so bad, I let you speak. So you heard all that yelling? By the way, that was MJ Lee, the CNN White House correspondent, asking the question to the former president. And now the problem I have is truly that, look, we don't have any other options. It's going to be these two folks. But more and more is going to be made about this age issue. And my biggest thing is, is that there is a few other candidates that are actually still in it from a Republican, from a Democrat, and an independent standpoint that are considerably younger that folks should probably look at. Obviously, we've talked about Nikki Haley, Dean, Representative Dean Phillips, who's been getting very, very small percentage of the votes. And obviously, he's only a U.S. House of Representative guy. He's only been in there, I believe, one term, maybe two terms, and he's up for re-election this year. He's running for president. And then obviously, you know about the third party candidates. And we saw a Super Bowl ad for RFK Jr. And there's been some other ones like Cornell West 
and obviously Jill Stein. This is going to be made a huge factor. Questions are going to continue to ask about it. And here's an example of a, a really good framed question of what White House Press Secretary KJP got from a reporter the other day about the age issue of current President Biden and with respect to former President Trump. Take a listen. But yesterday we saw the president again have a mix up with the president of Egypt, with the president of Mexico. So how do you explain that? Is it not valid that voters would have these concerns? Look, what I would say is this. Um, this is a president that has this has had relationship uh, with world leaders for more than 40 years. He has. Uh, and at times, and I even said this yesterday, does he has has he um, you know misspoken as many of us do? I've laid out uh, some examples of even Speaker Johnson just on uh, on TV on Meet the Press on Sunday, who who said he su he supports Iran when he meant to say he supports Israel. It happens. It truly, truly happens. And she makes a great point there. Like people do go through gaps. You and I have had them on this show, Nick. We've confused sometimes the political. Excuse me. The uh, I just made a mistake right there. But uh, the the legal calendar for the former president, we've confused some of the different things happening in jurisdiction wise because you and I are not lawyers. We confuse sometimes how to pronounce a country's name, how to pronounce a world leader's name. Those things happen once a camera is shined in front of you and a light is on you. The question is really about governance and the people that you put in place to run some of these departments, right? And what you make of the policies that those folks will enact. I'll give you the final word here, Mr. Saveri, on voter optimism or turnout come November. There's polling that shows 60% of Americans, two thirds, do not want a rematch of this. Yet so far, few primaries have happened across a couple states. We're into February. A few more are happening in a few weeks. And already the former president has been whooping folks uh, in their primaries and caucus across uh, Iowa and Nevada and New Hampshire and current President Joe Biden has been dominant in his you know, primary in New Hampshire, where he was a write in candidate and obviously in South Carolina and coming up soon, they're going to have South, uh, excuse me, they're going to have Michigan uh, and they're going to have some other uh, primaries coming up. So final word, what do we make of it? Is age to quote Aaliyah, nothing but a number or is it of concern for voters? Don't shake your head. That was actually a really good analogy. Or is it really a concern for voters as we come into to, uh, November here? I shake my head because when you mention Aaliyah, who comes to mind? For I know, I know, I know. All right, fine. Move off. And I'm, not even, I'm not even, yeah, we're not even going to let folks, folks, if you know what we're talking about, chuckle along and do your research. If you do not know, you're probably too listening to be listening to the show. But thank you for listening anyway. What it says, Mike, is that there is a massive disconnect between between the parties. Let's just stop for a second. If you're the Republican Party and you look at Trump, if you're the attitude being, well, he's gathering all these votes. And what I would say is that from a from a strategy, from a wow, look at me. See, I'm doing it from a strategic standpoint. The assumption that the only people we can get are these most ardent, MAGA, uneducated or college educated, but they don't think Trump is as crazy as he sounds people. Well, then I would say that the RNC is a massive failure. Because isn't the purpose of any political party to try to find ways to be able to bring on others? Is this not the Republican Party that's done a, an amazing job, if you really think about it, and I think you'd agree with me on, of being able to try to recruit recruit the Latino vote? You know, what we see in Florida, what we're seeing actually starting to take off in, in Nevada. 
in Arizona. There's an outreach there. They don't just step back and say, ah, people of color, we're not going to try to you know, reach out to them. No. They're like, this is one of the largest growing populaces in the United States. We need the Latin vote. I'm stunned that both parties look at this and say, well, the best we can do is the guy we had previously or the current guy. It's an embarrassment. Um, you know, someone in, in addition, you and myself, Maura Gillespie's been doing amazing work on this. And shout out to Maura when she hears this on the TV networks as well, you know, talking about this. And we obviously had someone on the show whose literal show podcast is called Somebody's Gotta Win. It is disappointing. I'm reminded of, you know, the election of 1860. You know, obviously Abraham Lincoln wins the election, but that election is the, really the beginnings of essentially the civil, the U.S. Civil War. But if you look at the ballot in 1860, you had like four people <laughs> running for office. And the country at that time, you know, had options, but there was a lot of vocal presence across the political spectrum. You know, right now we're at a place where we're down to um, two options. And it's because no one's really confident enough to try to extend beyond that. Yep. You know, it's. It's going to be a choice in November to see if people actually turn out. But I would recommend to people, vote your policy, research your candidates, see where they lean on policy decisions. And when you go to the ballot box, have no regrets because you've researched it thoroughly enough to find out more of a policy that means something to you. We leave it there. When we come back after the break, like I mentioned, former Trump attorney, Timothy Palatori is going to be joining us, going to break down all of the legal news that happened last week, some that's happened already this week with the former president and obviously the special counsel releasing that report on former, uh, excuse me, current president Biden. See another gaffe for me, Nick, there. Uh, Timothy, when we come back after the break. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Nick, today's episode is presented, as always, by our friends over at Fresh Roasted Coffee. Since 2009, their passion has always been bringing you gourmet coffees from all over the world, roasted fresh to order. I got my coffee snob here, Nick Saveri. Nick, tell these people, coffee snob it up here. Tell these people why Fresh Roasted Coffee is so good and why they're the official sponsor of Can We Please Talk. You know, often the best cup of coffee that you're ever going to have is the one you can you can make from home. And you need good quality coffee to do that. And that's what Fresh Roasted Coffee offers. You know, between single origin, between blends, flavors, anything on the coffee spectrum they've got. But more importantly, and I can't stress this enough, 
Often when you purchase coffee, you don't know where to start. I mean, there's so many different varieties, so many different opportunities, so many different things you could choose from. And Fresh Roast of Coffee just gives you a very simple questionnaire and just says, hey, figure out what your cup, what your coffee cup is. Figure out what blend works for you. I've gotten some single origin recommendations, so is Mike, and that's influenced everything. And what they recommend, you can get in a Keurig cup, the way Mike takes it. You can take it in the way I do it, which is typically through a French press, or you can get it for a percolator. Whatever coffee machine you've got, they've got you covered. But more importantly, just a huge variety and a way to learn more about coffee itself. And all of this is available at freshroastedcoffee.com on their site. One cup is all it takes to fall in love with fresh roasted coffee, but you get a discount for being a listener of Can We Please Talk. Enter in the promo code Can We Please Get 20 to get 20% off your first purchase. Head to freshroastedcoffee.com today. This episode is presented by the good folks over at Nerd Focus, new energy drink sponsor on the show. Nick, let me ask you a quick question. Do you lack focus and concentration, motivation? Do you need something to boost your stamina and strength? I do. You know, coffee Coffee isn't enough, so I'm always looking for other options. Well, I got something for you, Nick, that's going to boost your stamina and strength. It's going to enhance your focus and concentration. We're going to ramp up your motivation. We're going to provide alertness and stimulation. We're going to even improve your mood, Nick, which a lot of people on this on the comments are going to be happy with. I got the original Think Drink infused with powerful nootropics, performance-boosting nutrients, Click the link in our show notes right now to get a special offer on Nerd Focus Beverages for being a Can We Please Talk listener. Nerd Focus, there's a nerd in everyone. All right, kind enough to join us here to break down some of the legal news that's been happening around the former president and the current president. A bunch happening in both spaces. Uh, he's the managing partner over at the Politori Law Group. I uh, met him uh, recently at CNN, former legal counsel to former President Trump, Timothy Politori. Tim joins us here on the podcast. Tim, Mike and Nick, thank you so much for hopping on with us. Yeah, of course. You know, Tim, one of the things that was funny, because a few weeks ago when you and I ran into each other, you, you said something to me and I was like, save that for the podcast. So here we are. We're going to save it for the podcast. We're finally here. Uh, I wanted to first at a high level because I want to get into a bunch of the, the legal news happening around the former president and then some stuff that happened last week with the current but first, for, for our audience here that may not be familiar with you, maybe they're not news junkies like Nick and I are in terms of consuming all this. You've been on, obviously, the networks talking about what you did for the former president and the defense around the Mar-a-Lago case. Can you kind of explain high level what it is you worked on with the former president? Sure. So I spent uh, just over a year uh, representing uh, President Trump, and my responsibilities primarily dealt with the investigative phases of both the January 6th and the Mar-a-Lago investigations. Uh, and, you know, I got into it before the special counsel was appointed. So back when it was, you know, the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia on the January 6th and then, um, you know, the National Security Division on Mar-a-Lago. And then, of course, those all merged under Jack Smith. But, you know, the, the easiest way to say it is, you know, I was responsible for the exact opposite of, you know, the, the other side of the Jack Smith stuff. Right. Well, see, it's so much. And that's why I'm, I'm glad we have you on, because th there's so many moving pieces to all this. And I think people don't understand Florida, Georgia, New York, D.C., like there's so much to it. So let's start first with kind of where you were uh, sitting with the former president in terms of what you were helping him defend on. There was a recent uh, as we're recording this. So it's it's happening in parallel. But there was in the Mar-a-Lago trial. There was a discussion on the evidence 
uh, a docket there in the Fort Pierce, Florida there that the former president is in court for uh, as of this taping, like I said. Can you kind of explain what it is that they're maybe potentially looking at here from an evidence perspective in, in, in front of Judge Cannon? Sure. I mean, so right now they, they have a two day hearing on the you know, on the classified information uh, portion of this uh, case. And so a lot of that stuff is is things that, um, you know, obviously you can't talk about publicly. Uh, yeah, it's it's one of the complicating factors of a case like this, because when you are alleging that somebody, you know, willfully retained national defense information, um, yeah, national defense information is things that if disclosed would be damaging to national security. And so that kind of clashes with the idea of having an open courtroom where somebody is presented with the evidence against them because, you know, they're trying to prove that the evidence shouldn't be disclosed. Um, and so, you know, really they're dealing right now with some of the more technical motions on how to deal with the classified information uh, in, in that context. You know, Tim, to that question, though, you just mentioned the, the logic flaw in, in presenting evidence that is actually not meant for public consumption. Correct. But doesn't the but doesn't the sort of the opposite also then work too? Like this is compelling enough that the fact that it was still at the residence despite an attempt of retrieval, you know, by the archives department, the fact that it wasn't at least it's the case, you know, bring you know tries to bear out the fact that it was still at the residence is that potentially something that you know the special counsel is trying to present as you know, like evidence in and of itself, even without the jury trying to look at a redacted document. So it's the, the difficulty with that is what we're talking about national defense information. You know, the, the charge is not withhold or, you know, retaining classified information. Classification is just one person's opinion as to what level of national defense information it is. So that there are plenty of things that are classified that are not national defense information. I can give you some examples, you know, from this case uh, on that. And then there, there are, have been even situations where there are things that are unclassified that probably should have been classified uh, that would be considered national defense information. So it really is one of those things that in order to convict somebody, you have to prove to the jury that, you know, what how damaging this would have been. Um, so it, if you look at the indictment, you know, they talk about how they recovered you know hundreds of documents with classification markings, and yet they've only charged... You know, 30 some documents is actually being national defense information. The vast majority of these documents, even though they had classification markings on them, were not national defense information. Um, things like uh, daily schedules. You know, I'll give you a perfect example. Um, with the schedule that says tomorrow the president is going to fly to Afghanistan to have Thanksgiving dinner with the troops. Highly classified. Really don't want the Taliban to know that the biggest, juiciest target in the world is about to fly over their heads. But the moment he hits the ground and walks out into the you know dining hall facility with all the cameras, it's no longer national defense information. Everybody knows that he's there. So you know, there's a lot of things that are like that where very secret at the time, but not so much in retrospect. And and so that's really the issue is how many of these things you know really are still national defense information. You know, it's well said, it's like an FBI special agent that came on the program told us it's not how many, it's what's in it, right? Correct. And that's really what matters. Um, I did want to ask you, and like I said, there's so much, I want to get into like a kind of a summation of all of this. 
towards the end and where you think some of these will net out. We're going to have you put your prognosticator uh, cap on there. But but first, uh, let, let's pivot real quick, because there's been some rulings last week when you and I met at CNN a few weeks ago. We were circling some dates that would happen on the calendar last week, and there was a couple that were really pivotal. So first, I would love for you to talk about the U.S. Court of Appeals in D.C., the ruling that they had against uh, former President Trump about the president not having immunity. Can you kind of explain what the, the Court of Appeals ruled on, what case it applies to, and how does this, in terms of a defense argument, like, does this kind of poke holes in what the president is doing? Give us your summation of it. Sure. So, yeah, the argument was whether presidential immunity essentially bars the January 6th prosecution, uh, because all the allegations in the January 6th case are about things that he did while he was president. And it's something that's never really been tested as to what are the limits of a presidential immunity. And in that case, um, you know, the president's lawyers took the position that everything he does is immune. And of course, Jack Smith took the exact opposite position that once a president leaves office, nothing is immune. Uh, and you know, in that circumstance, I think what the what the court did was they took the indictment itself and they said, OK, based purely upon the allegations in the indictment, assuming that they're true, that an analysis of these facts, there would be no immunity. Uh, and so, and quite frankly, the way that they did the analysis, I think that they're right. Uh, I think that they they did correctly apply it because you know what they did was, the indictment makes very clear that he was doing these things allegedly in his capacity as candidate Trump as opposed to President Trump. And that's always been kind of one of the um, difficult points that, you know, we were looking at is that, you know, so many of these things, just if you change the perspective ever so slightly, it puts everything into a very different light. So on one hand, you, know, you go with the way that Jack Smith has done it, and you see it in the media all the time, that candidate Trump was trying to overthrow the will of the people and have himself installed. If you change the perspective just ever so slightly on that, and you say that, okay, maybe he didn't know that he lost. Maybe he did believe that he won. Maybe he did believe that there was fraud that wasn't being properly investigated. As President Trump, somebody who under the Constitution is mandated to ensure that the laws of the United States are faithfully executed, does he have an obligation to pressure the attorney general and law enforcement to make sure that the will of the people was accurately counted. And so that, that slight change in angle really makes all the difference here because uh, if he was really just trying to push to ensure that the will of the people was accurately counted and he was trying to avoid certification of a inaccurate counting, then that could potentially be within his role as the chief executive and therefore subject to privilege or uh, immunity. Whereas as a candidate trying to overthrow the will of the people, there's nothing that could possibly be considered legal or immune about that. And you know, the difficult thing that the appellate court had to deal with was that this was all done without the benefit of a pretrial hearing. Uh, so they didn't have an evidentiary hearing to really test any of this uh, whatsoever. Now, th there's a couple of ways you could have done it. You could have done it with a pretrial evidentiary hearing, or you could wait until after the trial is over and say, what was the evidence that came out at trial? And does that show that immunity should have applied? And so um, 
yeah, I think that that's probably, you know, if I were them, that's that would be the points that I would be hitting to the Supreme Court right now and say, yeah, hey, they made this decision based on this, but maybe an evidentiary hearing should be held first. And either way, that ruling, while it certainly says that the uh, prosecution can proceed at this stage, it doesn't preclude a potential argument after trial that the evidence that came out differed from what the indictment claimed and therefore immunity could apply. I'll be honest, Tim, as you mentioned that, I'm a loss too. I'm not a legal expert, obviously, but this seems a little like we're sort of trying to figure out what was the initial interpretation of these laws versus in the practical world, you know, how, where do we fall into? And this, the parallel I'm going to draw here is what's going on in Colorado. Yeah. From what it seems to be is that we're talking about a 14th Amendment with a particular section, in this case, I think it's section three, that doesn't quite name the president as a role for someone to be mindful of potentially um, being ineligible to run for office while being involved in, you know, potentially insurrection. I, you're going to correct me all on this in a minute, but is that what we're dealing with here, that there's just a lack of clarity from the founders or those who've written all these legal documents that leaves this kind of room? And if so, is that just a case that it was just never imagined we'd be in this situation or, or was there some intentionality of leaving some room for interpretation so that, you know, lawyers nowadays or in the future can continue to, to try to make sense of this? Well, and that's, you, you're hitting it right on the head there because yes, there's, there's always vagueness in these things. I mean, you can make, you know, very clear laws, but, those you know then run up against facts where there are factual situations that are much more gray and yeah i think that in the in the 14th amendment context you know certainly you you are running into a situation where it doesn't name the president or the vice president you know why because nobody was even thinking about that because abraham lincoln did not join the confederacy uh, it doesn't clearly define what an insurrection is because the under the name, you know, the, the understanding of what an insurrection is was very, very clear at the time. It was you put on a gray coat, you trade in the stars and stripes for the stars and bars, you pick up a rifle and you start shooting at guys wearing blue coats. You know, that's that's a very simple definition of uh, of insurrection. So nobody really questioned if you were a member of the Confederacy. It it excludes the vice president too. And interestingly, if you look at the vice president at the time, Andrew Johnson. He was a former senator from the state of Tennessee. And when Tennessee joined the Confederacy, he broke with his own state and he remained loyal to the Union. And so, you know, that's those are some of the reasons why when they wrote the 14th Amendment, they didn't need to add those positions. Um, you know, the flip side of it is uh, just Justice Jackson you know, raised some very good points there um, where she was saying, isn't this different because these are national positions? You know, we're afraid of the South rising again. And so we don't want to have, you know, congressmen and senators, you know, from, you know, these, these states where you will have you know, a Confederate congressman from a deep South state. But when it comes to the president and the vice president, that's a national election. And so, you know, a small, you know, insurrectionist state in the South can't dictate who the president's going to be because the North gets a say. So it, it is that's another possible reason why they did that. But yeah, you, you're right. In it's one of the reasons why, if everything was so clear and you know not open to interpretation, 
I would be totally out of work. My profession wouldn't exist. It'd be very simple. And we'd be out of work too, because we'd have nothing to talk about here. I mean, uh, but Tim, you're doing a great job because uh, like I said, there's so much to this and I feel like voters are truly not understanding it. And it's what I love about what Nick and I do, not to toot our own horn, but podcast format is better to kind of explain and get a little bit more in the weeds. So I, I did want to ask you, as you yeah. were mentioning all of that, and and obviously we know the president has been, the former president, excuse me, has been traveling to a bunch of these places, you know, with the Georgia Rico case, with the, what's happening in New York. He had a civil trial. Now he's uh, potentially with Alvin Bragg's case, whatever happens with that. He's in Fort Pierce, Florida for this. Um, I want to ask you kind of a two-parter here. First, did any did you, when you were serving on his legal team, did you guys have any communications or were you looking at like a calendar holistically to say, look, we may be up against this uh, in terms of a date wise where he could have a conflict. He, our client would have to travel to and from different states. Kind of give us the background of what that looks like, you know, what that war room kind of looks like. And then and the second part of this is where do you see some of this stuff shaking out? Because every television segment always ends with a look at the political calendar and his legal calendar. But nobody has been able to really kind of outline or articulate, I feel like like you do, of where they actually see it shaking out because they weren't in on the inside, right? Where you actually were making a projection. So kind of give us the inside of what it was like working under him and the coordination between some of the legal teams, if there was any. And then on the flip side, where do you see some of this stuff shaking out before November? Well, I, so the answer to your first part of the question is actually very simple because I left the team um, about a month before the indictments came down. So... Uh, we were not really looking at the schedule because, quite frankly, I mean, what my goal at the time was to make there be no indictment. You know, we we were trying to convince Merrick Garland not to pursue these things. And so um, trial calendar was something that was you know very far outside the scope of my view at the time. Uh, as to like, where do I see it shaking out now? You know, one of the interesting things here. Yeah, I try a lot of cases, some of which are you know pretty uh, politically sensitive, but um, none that involve an active candidate. You know, that's kind of a very unique situation you have right here because usually when somebody gets indicted, they drop out. You know, or they're or they're in a jurisdiction where they have, you know, so much support that re-election is not really as big of an issue. Um, you know, like you know Senator Menendez. So, you know, having that calendar is a very unique thing. And yeah, I know that everybody kind of looks at it as, oh, he's trying to delay it and he's trying to push it out past the election. But I look at it as I have never had a federal criminal case this complex with this volume of documents that ever comes close to a trial date within two years. It just doesn't happen. You know, I, I have a I have a case right now where the the number of documents, the sheer number of documents is on par with the January 6th case. That was indicted back in 2018. We still haven't gotten to trial. OK, so the idea that you can take a case with over a million do documents in discovery and pick a jury in under 12 months is crazy to me. It, it goes directly against, you know, all of what we do 
in federal criminal defense. And so, you know, Jack Smith is really, you know, pushing these things to get them done before the election in derogation of how these cases normally go and and then turning around and saying, look, he's he's trying to delay it. Um, and so, you know, and, and look, I would be saying the exact same thing if you ask me, you know, are they trying to delay the Hunter Biden trial past the election? Yeah, same thing. These cases, they just don't go that fast. You know, there have been very few instances. I've had two cases where I've, you know, pushed for it to go that fast. And both times it was, you know, relatively simple cases. And all of a sudden I got up and I said, okay, my client invokes his right to speedy trial. We want to, you know, try We want to pick a jury in the next two months. Prosecutors fell apart and dismissed the cases in those situations. So it, it's, it's not realistic to try any of these cases that quickly. Tim, as we're talking about the former president, I guess I'll ask this as plainly as possible. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes it doesn't seem like he's aware or understands the ramifications of public sentiment in a case where it seems like ideally you want to defer to your lawyers for messaging. Am I misreading that? Or is Trump really of the belief that the more he can be able to basically put forward a, his view in a public space, like in social media, the more that may potentially work to his benefit, even though he may potentially be putting forth information that for his legal team of which you once were a part of may actually make your jobs harder. It's it's a unique situation. I look, um, I got along well with my former client, you know, I'm, and this is not a political statement. This is just a personal statement. Uh, I got along well with him. I never had an issue with him. Um, the problem is the people that he is surrounded with, and every other person that I've ever represented that's had a campaign. The representation has always started out the same way. They'd introduce me to the campaign, and they'd say, "Look." You guys, you're here to get me reelected. Tim, you're here to keep me out of trouble. You guys, stay the hell out of his way. Tim, anything you need, you give it to him. And that and that was it. It was very clear lines from the beginning. Here, um, you know, he has he has the campaign. He's got you know the legal and you know one of the things you know I am not a campaign guy. I, I refuse to take part in any of that stuff um, you know, for either party. I'm just, you know, I don't fit into either party. I'm, I'm nonpartisan, uh, you know, to an extent. And so I don't, I didn't participate in that. All I'm focusing on is should my client go to jail? Whether you should go back to the Oval Office is somebody else's issue. And, you know, so when you do have that, you do have competing interests uh and one of the unfortunate things is when you have people like this you have competing interests of people that all feel like their opinions mean something and so you know in an ideal world you focus just on the case in front of you and you don't have to deal with these other things uh then you wouldn't have all these issues with the calendar you wouldn't have asked to have the issues with the public statements you wouldn't have the issues with the competing cases. You know, this, all of this would be far simpler if you were able to strip out all the election stuff and just focus on the facts, evidence, and the law and what does justice require. What you're just alluding to, if I heard you correctly, is that the candidate, aside for a minute, 
can surround themselves with some problematic people that can make a person like you have a harder time doing your job. Is that safe to say? Yes. He wins the election. How concerned are you about those kinds of people possibly being involved in policymaking? That is a political question, which is as a lawyer, I'm staying out of. See? Welcome, welcome to radical. That's a good lawyer answer, by, by the way, right? No, there. It's, <laughs> and it's fair, but I, I am compelled to ask because I mean, I'm, no, it's, it's a good you know, question. I, I don't, I don't blame you for asking the question, but you know, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm a lawyer, not a politician, and I don't, I don't want to even touch that. Well. Welcome to radical central uh, centralism. If that's a term here, we just coined it on. Can we please talk, Tim? I, I did hey, want to ask. Ben Franklin used to say, "I'm an extreme moderate." Oh, I like that. I want to have to take that Ooh, on the masthead here of the show, Nick. I did. I did want to ask you real quick about um, something I was mentioning to you before because I want to shift to the current president and you know special counsel in his case of mishandling of classified documents. A little bit different obviously in terms of the cooperation, but there was some damning stuff that came out of there. And then on Meet the Press this past Sunday, speaking of a political show, um, his his co-chair, Biden's co-chair for his re-election campaign, Mitch Landrow, was asked a question from Kirsten, uh, Kristen Welker, excuse me, the host of Meet the Press. I want to play the clip for you here because I kind of want you to react because it kind of uh, intertwines between what you were mentioning in terms of campaign versus the legal analysis and legal beagles. So take a listen to this. We're going to react on the other side. Well, just to be very clear, the report didn't say he wasn't engaged in any wrongdoing. In fact, it was quite firm in the fact that he mishandled classified documents. He just wasn't indicted and criminally charged. But let me follow up with you. The documents found in the president. Well, wait, no, Chris, wait, let me. No, 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 no. You can't. No, no, no. I'm not going to I'm not going to accept that premise in an investigation. A, a special counsel determines based on the facts and the law about whether somebody engaged in criminal wrongdoing. And he found out that the president didn't. As a matter of fact, he's the only special counsel that's been engaged in this kind of activity that had to say that he could not indict somebody. And th that is that is a fact. And so that's the big takeaway from this report from a legal perspective. All right, Tim, is that the big legal takeaway from all of this? Because this kind of made news and obviously the former, pre excuse me, the current president, these Freudian slips are killing me, Tim, but uh, the current president <laughs> gave a, a, a presser. President of Mexico, you mean? Right, right, president, exactly. <laughs> right, so you you know what's happening here. So he he comes out after the special counsel gives, you know, a little bit of, you know, the summation of, you know, the findings from the report, but then no charges. Give us a little bit of a breakdown of what happened there and then what his what Biden's co-chair there said. Is he accurate? Is that the major takeaway from this report from special counsel her? So, you know, one thing to remember is, you know, investigators, they they come, they do their investigations, they come up with their, you know, conclusions. But there's no due process in that. OK, this is a prosecutor who has conducted investigation and they come up with you know what the allegations are that have to be actually proven in court. Um, so. Any special counsel or inspector general, anybody that comes out with a report saying somebody did do this, you know, that's not proven as of yet. Um, and I would, you know, I'd say that about anybody, you know, whether, you know, the current president, former president. The the evidence in this case appears very damning. It does appear, um, you know, that he did you know, engage in the willful retention, uh, and I think that the special counsel did a um, a pretty good job of you know kind of analyzing how does this go to trial? Okay, because ultimately, investigators 
um, you know, like the FBI, they'll go through and they'll say, we think this person did this. The prosecutor has to then take it the next step and say, okay, that's great. That's certainly enough, you know, to arrest somebody. Is it enough to win at trial? You know, can I convince a jury of 12 people beyond a reasonable doubt that they did it? And so you have to consider potential defenses. And, you know, here he obviously, you know, laid heavy on the defense of, you know, mental incapacity uh, that the jury may believe that he didn't intend because he didn't know because he forgot. Um, I'll tell you the thing that, that really jumped out at me about this report uh, is, is I went back to, you know, to my own work um, in the Mar-a-Lago case, and we had written a letter um, to the House and Senate uh, Intel committees, um, you know, right towards the end, right before I left, uh, where we did a deep analysis of how these documents got out of the White House to begin with. And we wrote it in a way that was applicable to President Trump, President Biden, and Vice President Pence. Because the reality is, what this case shows beyond a shadow of a doubt, what the Trump case shows beyond a shadow of a doubt, is that the White House does not have proper document handling procedures. They do not follow the same procedures that the Department of Defense follows, that the intelligence community follows. And so the reason why these documents left government control to begin with is because of a failure of document handling procedures within that institution. I would say that based on reading that report, it appears to me the documents got to Mar-a-Lago because of carelessness, because it was a rushed transition and GSA packed everything up real quick and move them down. They didn't have any place to put them other than Mar-a-Lago. And so there's no allegation that anybody said, hey, I want to take all those classified documents with me. All of the litigation that they're going over right now is based on what happened down there once the documents were found. Now, Rob Herr has taken a little bit back and said, some of this may be that, but also some of these, like the notebooks, were things that you know, his staff specifically told him, you know, you can't take this, but it wasn't clear. And so he he was allowed to take them anyway, which, again, is the type of thing that you would not expect coming out of the Pentagon or CIA headquarters or anything like that. Uh, although David Petraeus was, in fact, charged and convicted for doing exactly that. Um, so it, it does go back to the point that we were making at the time before the Mar-a-Lago charges came down, that the way to resolve all of these cases is by the legislature going in and creating a solution of fixing the procedures within the White House. They have actual knowledge of a national security threat, of an actual national security vulnerability that can be fixed. Focus on that instead of putting, you know, former or current occupants of the White House in jail. And if you look back in history, Presidential Records Act was passed during the Carter administration. It first applied to President Reagan. Every single president from Reagan up through the present, they have found a mixture of classified and unclassified documents in the boxes after they left office. Every single one. They found documents in Joe Biden's house. They found documents in Mike Pence's house. They're too afraid to go look at Dick Cheney's house. You know, it, this is a problem and one that can be fixed. Jimmy Carter found documents in his house.
Presidential Records Act didn't apply to Jimmy Carter. He found them and he called the National Archives and said, hey, you want to come get these? Over 40 years, we've known about this problem. Over 40 years. And so then you look at when the uh, when the when the transition happened and President Trump, you know, they have all these boxes out on the driveway and the, you know, the National Archive director is saying, oh, well, I was very concerned seeing that on TV because I thought, you know, those records should go to the National Archives. No, he knew that there were classified documents in those boxes. He didn't say anything. He let him go down to Mar-a-Lago. For the next year, when they're going back and forth saying, oh, these are, you know, these are Presidential Records Act documents, they should be brought back. He never once says, Mr. President, by the way, I think that there's classified documents in your basement. Can I send somebody down there to go through them and just make sure that we've safeguarded classified information? Never once. Instead, they waited until the first set of boxes came back find that it's the exact same mixture of documents. And by the way, I went to the National Archives. I went through these boxes myself. They went through and they found it's the exact same mixture of documents that they've had in every single administration up to that point. And they you know, run off to DOJ and say, oh my God, he's got classified documents in his, in his house. It's exactly the same thing that they've had for every other administration. Joe Biden, when they found started finding documents in his house, he had the benefit of seeing what happened in Mar-a-Lago. And if I was his lawyer at the time, I would have sat down with him. I would have said, hey, look, dude, here's what we got to do. You see what happened to Mar-a-Lago? We are going to make a huge show of being different from that. We're going to make a big drama about how you know compliant and helpful we are so that at the end, we can you can make this speech saying, look how compliant I was versus the other guy. So, I mean, that that to me was something that was, you know, really choreographed from the beginning by some very smart lawyers. I give them a lot of credit for that. I, th I think they did a good job. And, but ultimately, at the end of the day, how you respond once you're under investigation doesn't mitigate the original act. You know, the, the crime, if there is a crime in this case, is committed when the documents are removed intentionally, if they are, when they're retained after you find them, if they were, and not how nice you were to the investigators once they reach out to you. That's why we have you on. That's why we have subject matter experts, people that have been around this stuff, have worked in it, have worked on it, have covered it, are covering it. Tim, I can't thank you enough for hopping on the podcast with us and give us a couple minutes. Continue success to you, sir, and please stay safe. All right. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. All right. Our thank yous there to Timothy Palatori, like I mentioned, former attorney for the former president, managing partner of Palatori Law Group, and obviously criminal defense attorney. Um, bunch there. I, I, my biggest takeaways as we wrap here, Nick, 
was really uh, kind of what he said there at the end about, you know, charging these former presidents or investigating these former presidents because one section of government doesn't have a way to handle classified documents. We've kind of heard that. Ellie Honig has mentioned that as a former DOJ prosecutor about, you know, the classifications and like, and, and, you know, all of this documents and, and Pete Lapp mentioned how many millions of people have a clearance. So like other, other uh, departments do have a structure put in place. Uh, I thought you got a little bit of good insight there in terms of like what's coming up for the former president, what's he, what he's going through. Kind of want to hear from somebody that, you know, like played for the team to kind of hear like, what were they going through strategy wise? And he mentioned their strategy at the time was to not, to get Merrick Garland to not charge the former president, because like he said, the process is broken. Yeah, sure. They packed it up quickly because they got to leave. This guy thought he won the thing. So he's staying. And meanwhile, they got to pack things up and kind of leave. Now, again, we got into that in our first segment. But anyway, um, quick takeaways from you as we wrap here on the show about about Tim and then also about the legal calendar for both of these guys, although Biden's legal calendar just ended. I think Tim brings up a really good point about like fix the law. Right. And I'm reminded of in the Trump campaign, you know, and I know Dave Chappelle has made light of this too, but like Trump was very open about tax laws saying, yeah, I break them. You want me to do something about it? It'll fix the law and right. you won't, won't for obvious reasons, but it's a little like speeding. So we all know it's wrong. And there's a signpost that says you don't do it. If you get caught, your defense can't be, well, everybody else did like, like you're caught and you and I've talked fundamentally that the difference has been that in the case of other people, you know, when it was called upon to turn the documents over, everyone else complied except the former president. And it's important because we're going to get emails. We're going to get tweets on this show, whatever about, well, you know, Biden did it. Trump did it. That's fair. And all three of them should should deal with some legal ramifications for this going going forward at the same time the national archives ask you to turn stuff in and then you have the audacity to turn around and say no i don't have to and then as tim tried to bring up you know when people threaten you you know with rolling up on your property to, to take it if you choose to lawyer up and i want to bring this up because this is where this is where the foreign president would say this if you choose to lawyer up does that make you guilty right I, I don't know. I mean, answer. I'm just this is exactly the kind of talking point that the former president would have used. And I'm just simply asking the question. But that aside, that's a political thing. The broader conversation what, where Tim is about fixing the law, totally in agreement with. And the fact that this is going back as far back as even former President Jimmy Carter is really compelling. I appreciate you know, this is one of the best examples maybe ever, honestly, of subject matter expertise on our show, because. Here's a person who, you know, you and I have talked about the National Archives. You and I have talked about documents. We've had people like Ellie Honig talk about it. This was a guy who's literally has fingerprints on these documents. He's had to review them. So when he's on the show telling us, you know, what broadly based was there and was the ongoing legacy of not just the former president, but other people who've done the same thing, more or less, he's worth listening to for sure. And for that, he wins my respect. Yeah, I agree. And, and the best example that he gave was the schedule, right? Presidents going to Afghanistan, 
now he's landed. That schedule document is, is, is useless. So we leave it there. Our thank yous again to Timothy Palatori. Like I mentioned, you can follow him on social media over on IG or Twitter. Speaking of social media, follow us on social media at Can We Please Talk Podcast over on IG, on TikTok, on Twitter at Can We Please Talk. YouTube, you want to check out the video portion of Tim when uh, as he did our interview on the show. Head over to our YouTube channel, type in Can We Please Talk Podcast. We should pop right up. Hit the subscribe button for me while you're there. Audio podcast platforms, you know by now. Apple, Spotify, Google. Shout out to everybody listens to us on Good Pods, on YouTube Music. And shout out to Acast, our hosting platform. We can't do it without them. Can't do it without each and every one of you that listens into this program. As always, I am Mike Leon. I'm Nick Sperry. We'll see everybody next time. infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing we wondered the same thing so we made byheart a better formula for formula learn more at byheart.com When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Kyler Tsenas. Kyler Tsenas. I'm Kyler Tsenas, and I have been training a global community of women since 2009. I've created a brand new podcast, Sweat Daily, to help you level up your life and reach your health and well-being goals. From fitness tips to food that fuels you, meditation to motivation, we've got you covered. Sweat Daily, the happiest, healthiest, and most confident version of you awaits. Available on Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.